Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Claire Virginia Abey is a professor of English at the University of Connecticut. Her book, Until Choice Do Us Part, Marriage Reform in the Progressive Era, published by the University of Chicago Press, is a topic of this show. In her book, Abey examines the origins of how we think of marriage through the theoretical and experimental reform of the institution in the Progressive Era. Marriage theorists such as Havelock Ellis, Elsie Clues Parson, and Charlotte Perkins Gilman took up a critique of the economic basis for marriage to advocate for women's legal autonomy, erotic agency, and the right to non-reproductive sexuality. Against a the traditional model, they proposed an egalitarian model of mutual consent and affection. Marital reform ideals included breaking the economic dependency of women, rejecting the validation of marriage by church or state, voluntary monogamy, at-will divorce, and mutual sexual satisfaction. Redefining personal relationships as a microcosm of society was a means of reforming society as a whole in an educational process carried through a variety of writings reaching a large reading public. In addition to the theorist, Ebby examines the lives and writings of three couples who experimented with the new ideal. Upton and Meta Fuller Sinclair, Theodore and Sarah White Dreiser, and Neith Boyce and Hutchins Hapgood. Examples of literary works that explored new forms of marriage included Sinclair's Love's Pilgrimage, Theodore Dreisel's The Genius, and Neith Boyce's The Bond. These works took up the themes of open marriages, sexual variety, emotional compatibility, dual careers, and the end of love in divorce. Until Choice Do Us Part provides insight into our own contemporary marriage patterns and the tensions between love and freedom that remains. Here's my conversation with Claire Virginia Abbey. Now let me introduce you to the author, Claire Virginia Abbey. Hello, Claire. Hi, Lillian. Welcome to the show, and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Your book presents the pro- a provocative argument that the progressive era reformers inaugurated what we now consider modern views of marriage and sexuality, and this was really part of their progressive program. But before you talk about the book... Uh, Tell us something about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Until Choice Do Us Part. Well, um, my background, I have been working on in the progressive era for um, ever since grad school. I graduated graduated from Michigan with my Ph.D. in 1988. Um, But I guess I've always sort of considered myself as much a historian as an English professor, which is what I technically am. Um, so that's sort of my, that's my background. And in terms of this book, I think that it ended up morphing more than scholarly projects usually do. And I think scholarly projects do morph a lot. And basically I had been editing, um, a a novel by Theodore Dreiser, which is his most autobiographical novel called The Genius. And I was bringing out a new edition, um, based on an earlier holograph. And that novel is completely obsessed with marriage, which I had known, of course, for years. Then shortly after that, I happened to read Upton Sinclair's 
biographical novel published exactly the same time called Love's Pilgrimage. And I saw similar, very similar issues concerning marriage. So then I became curious and I started reading around and I quickly found out that there was something that almost seems to be a program um, in terms of all kinds of writers, social scientists, um, literary writers, uh, journalists, historians, all kinds of people actually writing about marriage as something that was in transition. So I became very interested in that and and investigating that led to Until Choice Do Us Part. Now, the way you approach this is you, you think of it as a, a marriage reform program that was very much at the heart of social reform. Correct. Why do you make that connection? Um, I guess it's because the the writers, and particularly, and I should say about my book that it, there's sort of there's a real blending of the sort of, of literary figures and, and non-literary figures, and I found that with writers such as Havelock Ellis, um, Edward Carpenter, Ellen Key, um, El, the first two were, were British, um, and Ellen Ellen Key was actually a Swedish feminist, although very strange kind of feminism. Elsie Clues Parsons, who is who is an anthropologist. I found that a lot of different writers were actually casting marriage as, as Charlotte Perkins Gilman put it, if, if memory serves me, sort of the, the microcosm of society. So that, in other words, um, they believed and they wrote about um, their conviction that if that if, if we could reform marriage, that would be the path toward other changes. So it's very much a, a sort of a, a an attitude toward reform that begins with the personal, which I think is very different from how we often think of the progressive era. So it's sort of the original, the personal is political. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I thought that, that was I thought that was very fascinating connection. Now, let's talk about marriage itself. Before we talk about the reformers and what they were trying to do, you spent a whole chapter talking about the history of marriage and what marriage meant before the reformers. So talk to, to the audience about that. Well, the, the marriage reformers were very much working against a model of marriage, um, a traditional model of marriage that they characterized, and at times this may not have been accurate, but that they characterized it as, I would say, first and foremost, sort of the old model of marriage as an economic uh, relationship between man and wife. Um, and this is, you know, something that is certainly very familiar to us, the sort of traditional notion that the, that the man is the breadwinner and the, and the, the woman um, stays at home. But the progressive uh, marital reformers saw this as sort of the root of a great deal of evils. Um, and among other things, they felt that it actually made marriage into a mercenary relationship. Um, they also, most of them, not all of them, but most of them objected to the fact that marriage was defined in addition as a legal um, as a legal relationship um, because they felt that there that it was much more important for um, feelings and and emotions to be in charge rather rather than the law um, also another thing that they very much objected to was that divorce was extremely hard to procure and that's something that I could certainly talk more about later because I think that's that's very important. Um, and so they saw marriage at they saw the existing models of marriage as being mercenary, as being co- coercive, as being inappropriately legalistic um, and as prohibiting divorce. Um, and where they felt that actually if divorce was if divorce were something that a couple could could procure more easily, they felt that it would actually strengthen marriage. So um I, and I'm so, I know I'm sort of blending what the changes were versus what they were um, versus what they were trying to defi- what they were trying to reform. But as I see it, their notions of what marriage should be were very much wrapped up with their criticisms of what marriage currently was. Now, one thing that they were uh, were against is the you know, idea that the church or the state had to sanction marriage, or that it was necessary to have that sanction. Absolutely. So, in a way, they were aboli- they were abolitionists to, towards state and church and state defined marriage, even though they were not abolitionists in a personal sense or a social sense. Yes, yes, b- very much so. I mean, a, a phrase that I used often, but I think that it has pretty similar meaning, is that they were anti formalist um, in the sense that 
that any sort of pre-existing form, and as you quite rightly put, any sort of state form or, or le- as well as legal form, um, that they did not feel that that, that w- would be a valid basis for marriage. So, I mean, and obviously in a lot of ways, these attitudes that I'm describing are things that I think today we sort of, many of us take for granted as being the way marriage should be. And I, I was actually very surprised to find that this, that these attitudes started a hundred years ago. So the, the chief theorists that you deal with are like Gilman, uh, Elsie Clouse Parson, Edith Wharton. Uh, you talk about these people and what they, and how they in different ways advocated different aspects of this. Uh, economic independence for women was very critical to this whole thing. Uh, and also, uh, voluntary monogamy. What do they mean by voluntary monogamy? Well, this this was one of the the um, areas where I had to really sort of struggle to understand because in the midst of <clears throat> excuse me in the midst of a treatise that would seem to be um, sort of a small p progressive that would seem to be you know very forward looking that was advocating the importance of female sexuality that was advocating the importance of emotion that was critiquing the economic basis of marriage, what I found again and again is that these marriage reformers would actually, they actually um, were typically very pro-monogamy and not only pro-monogamy, but pro-long-term relationship. Um, and so they would definitely were not anti-marriage as, as their detractors, as their detractors argued. So the, the notion of voluntary monogamy um, is that monogamy, according to the to the reformers, monogamy is a very valuable thing, and in fact, for many of them, it is an essential thing. Um, however, that monogamy should not be motivated by the feeling that, say, the church is saying that adultery is wrong, or that if you and this is something that was very different then than now, that if one spouse committed adultery, that that would actually give the other spouse the right to sue to sue for for divorce. So they valued monogamy, but they felt that it needed to grow out of organic feelings within the relationship rather than be imposed from the outside. Now, when you're looking at the theorists, and I'm thinking right now we're going to stay at this theoretical level before we get into the literature, uh, literary aspects of it. Now, did men and women, the theorists, did they have a different take or definition of what they were, they were working for, or were they pretty unified theoretically? I would say that they were that they were pretty unified. I mean, the the um, and this is sort of a sidebar, although I think it's actually a very important one. Um, and just as an indication of how unified they were, interestingly, a couple of the main marital theorists, and particularly Edward Carpenter, but also Havelock, Havelock Ellis's wife, Edith Ellis, actually were gay or lesbian, and yet they still were affirming the importance of heterosexual long-term monogamy. Um, and in pretty similar terms, I mean, one thing that I deal with a lot in the book and it was originally going to be part of the subtitle of the book, but my editor wisely urged me not to have too long of a title, is the conflict between theory and practice. So I would emphasize that at this point, that theoretically there was very wide agreement. Um, although actually there were some of the some of the theorists, particularly um, George Eliot Howard, who was a historian at University of Chicago, who, did, who were not so anti, anti-legal basis of marriage. But for the most part... They were theoretically in concert. So, Claire, what is the difference here between uh, fr- free love, how we think of free love, and these marriage reformed? Because we think of free love as just being sort of, you know, anarchistic in a way. Right, exactly. And, again, the detractors of the marriage reformers tended to equate them with the free love movement, which actually the marriage reformers would insist was completely um, completely inaccurate. So I think free love is um, is is typically very non-monogamous um, and not interested in making the long-term commitment. So I would say that that is the difference in terms of the marriage reformers because they 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 well first of all they they valued marriage they met they valued monogamy they valued long-term long-term relationships but they they wanted them to be voluntary and based on emotion. So I think that's the real difference. So the the opponents would talk about free love in terms of if you were seeking 
the loosening of divorce law, um, and you were asserting voluntary monogamy and uh, economic independence for women. Would they interpret that as being taking marriage and making it sort of a free love institution? Absolutely. Okay, so it was a matter of definitions. Right, very much so. Okay, how did this how did this female sexuality, female sexual agency work into this argument? Particularly I'm thinking in terms of what was happening with birth control movement because this is not possible unless you have readily available contraception. Absolutely. Um, and although I only deal in passing with uh, Margaret Sanger, who's the best known of the uh, of the birth control advocates in the U.S., um, I only deal with her in passing. But there's no question that the existence of contracept- contraceptives um, was absolutely crucial to having to encouraging a model of marriage that was going to be based on emotion and that, that and that was going to affirm female sexuality. And curiously, Margaret Sanger actually was very good friends with one of the main marital reformers who was, who was Havelock Ellis. Um, and I think that the, the emphasis on, um, on female sexuality is of course very consistent with the argument that marriage should, marriage should be based on emotion. And a word that, um, historians use in, to describe actually many different areas I mean, sorry, many different eras is the notion of companionate marriage. And that's another useful thing to to bring another useful term to to bring into the mix, because companionate marriage is typically seen as as uh, as marriage, which is which is embracing this the sexual dimensions of heterosexuality. Now, what would they, why would they be concerned about female sexuality unless there was had been a problem? Was there a problem that they were trying to address? Was there a lot of women reporting that they were unsatisfied, that they didn't like the terms of the sexual relationship in the marriage? What was causing them to focus in on women, particularly? Well, that's a good question, and there were uh, there were a number of number of reasons, but one that I found particularly interesting was, um, and I associate this particularly with uh, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, who was best known as a writer of fiction, including the Yellow Wallpaper, but she also wrote a number of non-fictional, non-fictional treatises. And so she, she argued that the, because of the economic basis of traditional marriage, that, that marriage was, was basically a form of prostitution, that there really was no difference. Um, between marriage and prostitution, except that the wife um, was in a social position where she felt quite incorrectly in Gilman's mind that she could sneer at the at the common prostitute. Um, so that was so that was one very large very large problem um, that led the marriage reformers to emphasize female sexuality. You know, the, we also have all of the all of the sort of stereotypes about the Victorian era, and of course, it's always particularly difficult to know what people did uh, beneath the sheets, much less over a hundred years ago. Um, but a number of the reformers, and for instance, Upton Sinclair, um, who's who's a literary figure, but who was very much involved with this, he he uh, cast the earlier era, the Victorians, um, as Sort of as anti-sex and particularly as anti-female sexuality. So, so there was certainly this perception that sexual pleasure had not been a part of marriage, particularly for women. In addition to the art, to the many arguments that the economic basis of marriage fundamentally distorted the relationship. So there could be no mutual sexuality. And also, you've got the, uh, the whole idea of the double standard. Were they were they thinking in those terms? Men were able to step outside the marriage, go to prostitutes with very little, no consequences, and women could not. Yes, absolutely. And again, birth control comes back into the picture once again um, because when when birth control is not widely available, then the consequences of any sort of adultery for women are seriously compounded. Okay, and I also saw this connection. You didn't really explore it, but um, the connection between uh, these reformers, these marriage reformers, this is all happening not only with birth control movement is is really getting underway 
or uh, making claims. And also the, the be- beginning of defining what we now call modern feminism. Absolutely. And according to according to um, one historian, Nancy Cott, um, I believe it's the year the year 1914, um, where she talks about the first um, use of the term feminism in the United States. So yes, the the, the marriage reformers um, were typically feminists, some more so than others. Um, at the same time, I mean, as is as is the case today, uh, feminism was not at all. A uniform, a unified platform, and there were disagreements at times, very heated disagreements between the marital theorists. I'm thinking particularly of Charlotte Perkins Gilman versus Ellen Key, who I mentioned earlier, who was a, who was a Swedish feminist, whose views um, were, in some respects, much more conservative than Gilman's. But they both consider themselves feminists. They both consider themselves themselves reformers. A number of the well. Most, if not all, of the of the males involved with this would have also consi- would have also considered themselves to be feminists. Okay, so I can see the what women would gain from this in terms of uh, female sexual agency, being able to divorce, um, that, uh, economic independence. Great, you know, would be a boom for women. What would men gain from this reformed marriage? That's a great question. Um, I, the most important thing is that men would gain um, loving, emotionally com- committed companions as opposed to uh, partners who were, in effect, their legalized prostitutes. So the reformers believed that the emotional gains for men would be as profound as, as they were for women. Um, and, you know, quite simply, the men would know that their wives were with them because their wives loved them, not because they felt that they had no other options. Now, the emotional aspect of these relationships, you talk about them very much promoting mutuality, emotional satisfaction and connection, and that that would be the basis for marriage. Did they ever consider, or they, and I didn't see you do this, did they consider the fact that if feelings wane, that people go through bad times when uh, they're not feeling quite so romantic or attached to their partners, and that how difficult it is to maintain the level of intimacy, the level of connection that they were advocating? Yes, and I and I think that where I um, explore that more is when I move from the marital theorists and their sort of their agenda, and then when I move to looking at individual marriages, which is also the part of my book where it turns to be to become more literary. Um, and in that sort of second part of the book, I'm dealing with three different three different couples, um, and in each case, I'm dealing with the actual marriages and also autobiographically inclined writings about marriage and in those texts and in what I can recover of those actual marriages, I'm very much tracing these sorts of conflicts um, and which again to me goes back to the idea of the difference between theory between theory and practice. Um, and back to what you had asked earlier about um, about what are what would men gain and the questions about feminism, it's particularly when we turn to the actual, uh, the actual sort of day in and day out of marriage, not the theory of it, but the actual living of it, where um, men in particular, I think, had more trouble having practice live up to theory. Right, because it just seems like they were their, their idealism was so over the top in terms of the theorist that it seemed like an impossibility. But since marriage, we all know, is a lot of work. And it's a lot of emotional work. Right. And to think, especially when you're talking about the the stages of love and, you know, between the initial infatuation and and initial honeymoon period to when children come into the the picture and things get very complicated very quickly. So um, I was just kind of wondering, were they... They didn't really consider that theoretically, but they really had to hit it when they got into the personal, actual living it out. 
Absolutely. And one thing that that I found, and that I certainly this should be the subject of another book, is what happens when children enter the picture. Um, and this is something that I only touch on because that because the if we once we shift from ma- from the marital dynamic to the family dynamic, obviously there's a continuity, but you're also talking about a completely different different sort of relationship. Um, but so that was that was particularly where a lot of conflicts emerged. And in that case, actually, I think that there there were um, contradictions built in to even the reform agenda, the reform agenda, which, you know, theoretically should be should be um, something that that many people could embrace without the difficulties of practice. And it, and what I mean by that is that a number of the theorists and I think, again, particularly of, of Havelock Ellis, although it's true of true of, of many of them. Um, actually changed their theoretical tune when they imagined children being born. Because then all of a sudden it becomes much more difficult to promote, well, first of all, to, to, to promote the idea that, that women are going to be independent par- partners and, and that women are going to be working because somebody has to take care of the children. Um, and often, the, so the whole sort of center of gravity would shift. And so I found in a lot of the theoretical writings that um, that the birth of children became became um, a place where there was a lot of sort of backpedaling on some of the theoretical ideas. Right, because, and, yeah, because yeah. this economic relationship that uh, men and women had, had one of its primary functions was the maintenance and nurturance of children. Right, right. Okay, so now let's get into the, to the, the three, you had three couples that you dealt with who were, Literary couples, they wrote a lot of nonfiction, and in, in this nonfiction and autobiographical writing, they sort of explored these themes and the kinds of things that they were exploring, things like open marriage, sexual variety, emotional compatibility, uh, dual careers, the end of love and divorce. They were all dealing with these things in their writing. Let's talk about each of the couples. Uh, Absolutely. Um, so let me, I'll just talk first about one about one couple, and then I'll just sort of pause and let you let you redirect. The first couple I deal with is Upton Sinclair and his first wife, and I want to emphasize first wife because he actually had four wives over the course of his life. In that respect, Upton Sinclair is uh, certainly committed to this this sort of ser- notion of serial monogamy. But in any in any case, um, in the the he, he married. A, a young woman named Meta Fuller, um, and Upton and Meta were extremely naive when they married, and they actually married with the express intention of the two of them together launching their liter- their literary careers. She was more inclined toward poetry; he was more inclined inclined toward fiction. Um, and they actually, from what can be um, ascertained uh, from the archival sources, as, as well as what they wrote, was what wrote about in their fictions, they actually went into marriage intending it to be completely platonic. So obviously, this is already a twist from the um, from the progressive ideal, what, one of, which embraces in part, um, among other things female sexuality. So they so they actually went into marriage with that assumption that it was going to be sort of all work and that it was going to be no sex. And guess what? They're young and the hormones are their hormones are running and so that really did not work out. And um, so Meta Meta Fuller Sinclair published like almost nothing in her lifetime. I found one or two poems in very obscure newspapers. Um, however, she did leave behind a fascinating, incomplete autobiographical novel in fragments called Thrysis and Corydon. And those are just strange names, um, Thrysis, Thrysis and Corydon. And interestingly, they're the same names that Upton Sinclair used in his fictionalized version of their marriage, which is called Love's Pilgrimage. And so... As I read through Meta's version, it was quite interesting to find, first of all, many parallels. I mean, you know, they're they're tracking the same basic story, but then finding huge differences of emphasis. And one of them that I found particularly revealing is that um, the description of the wedding night. 
Um, and now I shouldn't actually say wedding night because the because the whole wedding night business, the, the consummation of the marriage was delayed because of their own um, idea that they were not going to have sex. Period. But um, in Upton Sinclair's version version of it, um, it is what happens is that when Thrysus, the, the Thrysus, the male character, and Corydon finally have sex together, sort of against their will, but because their hormones are going nuts, the husband ends up opening this Pandora's box of female sexuality, and Corydon just is like sort of, and it's and the, the description of it is just really embarrassing to read because it's all like so horribly stereotypical that she that she, that she just becomes you know desperate for for sex. Um, whereas when we read um, Meta's version of, of the of the account, for one thing, she has this this sexual initiation occur much earlier in the marriage, but more significantly, she describes it as basically a rape, and there's no sense at all of her getting any sort of sexual pleasure. So so I was ex- so I explore these sorts of differences. Um, and then I end up wrapping around to sort of fast forwarding a number of years after their marriage because they, they were divorced in a very, very, very highly publicized um, manner. And in fact, they even basically called press conferences for the, New York, for the New York Times because this was a great opportunity for each of them to come out and proclaim um, how and why they thought marriage should change. And one thing that they did agree on at that point was that divorce should be much easier, much easier to procure. Um, so, so I, I deal at length with their with with the divorce, um, and it was actually extremely fun finding all of these newspaper accounts, and there were like hundreds of them. Um, and looking at the way the journalists the journalists cast the marriage, and actually a number of journalists were, I think, surprisingly sympathetic with Meta. And I say surprisingly because the way this actually shook down was that Meta had taken a lover, um, and this was also very highly publicized. She was involved with a with a poet by the name of Harry Kemp, who had previously been Upton Sinclair's protege, wonderfully enough. Um, so I deal, I deal at great length with the newspaper accounts, and then I sort of do a fast forwarding after that um, and deal with some of Upton Sinclair's later writings about marriage, in in which he had sort of circled around and ended up appropriating some of his first some of his first wife's ideas. Now they now they were forming an economic partnership. You're right. They were, but they, the the intention was that it was an that it was an economic partnership based on reciprocity. So so that it was an economic so that the two of them were going to be working and writing together. So why uh, would they need to be married? Uh, there was going to be no sex. Why was that no sex? Because they weren't interested in sex, or they thought sex was going to complicate their creative process. What was the reason for that? Well, I think the the main reason for it is that Upton Sinclair was a very um, very tortured soul. He had this is maybe a bit unfair, but he had something of a of a messiah complex. I mean, he really thought that his his writing was was going to change the world. He in, he without question had deep fear of his own sexuality. And of what would happen. I mean, and so, and I think that actually the real Pandora's box was not Meta's sexuality, but was Upton's sexuality. Um, so, and in terms of why do they think they should be married, that's a very interesting question. And I'm not sure of the answer. They were very young, and I think that they were less radical than they thought they were. And um, I think it was important for both of them to have the approval or at least acceptance of their families, especially their mothers. And so I think that they thought, you know, very, very naively that they could sort of adopt this existing institution of marriage, which would authorize their living together, but that they could personally transform it um, into something that would be a, a a relationship of working together, writing together, um, bypassing the problems of the wife's uh, econo- economic dependence. Oh, and intimacy. 
Yes. The problems yes. of intimacy, which is what I, I read into that. Right. Absolutely. That's okay. So the other couple that you deal with is Theodore and Sarah White Dreiser. Right. Right. And um, so Dreiser, um, Dreiser's a fairly controversial author, and he's best known for uh, for Sister Carrie, which deals with a um, a young a young woman who quite notorious who who moves from a small town to the big city of Chicago, and quite notoriously um, becomes in, sexually involved with two different men sequentially. Um, out, outside of marriage. In the second case, there's this sort of pretend marriage, but he's actually already married, so it's bigamy, so it's, so it's not, so it's not, it's not legal. Um, but the novel that I deal with is, is Dreiser's 1915 novel called The Genius, which has always been seen as his most autobiographical work. And it's a thinly veiled, um, fictionalization of his first marriage to, to Sarah White. Who was a a, a young uh, school teacher who he met? Um, actually, Dreiser went to the famous um, Chicago World's Fair in 1896, um, and Sarah was going. I, I think with a, perhaps it was with a school group, but he met her there, fell madly in love. Um, and so the, the, this 1915 novel, The Genius, tracks this uh, notoriously. Um, bad marriage, um, and they in the in the novel the the uh, couple have have sex together before they're married, and then there's all this pressure from the from the woman on the man to get married, and then they get married, and thing and things do not work out, and and the wife is very jealous, and the man is is uh, constantly attracted to other women. And she, and then, and, and then the marriage is just basically a disaster, and it's particularly a disaster sexually. And one of the sort of creepiest things about the novel is that, again, there's this sort of anxiety about marital sexuality that we saw in the case of the Sinclairs, but in the case of uh, the way Dreiser casts this, um, it's as if when when his male protagonist sleeps with his wife that it robs him of his sexual energy, which is tied up with his creative energy. So, and, and, and in the, in the novel, the, um, the male protagonist wants to be a painter, um, not, not a writer. Um, and so you have this disastrous marriage and the only way that Dreiser was able to resolve it because of the, the nature of divorce laws, which is something I could get into later, if you like, is basically by killing off, killing off the, the, uh, the wife. And she, she dies in childbirth in a very grisly scene. Um, and then the novel ends pretty famously or pretty infamously with the male protagonist. Um, he has a, he, he has a daughter, um, fr- you know, from the from the uh, the the wife who died in childbirth. But he is sort of sleeping with an unnamed string of women, and he's very, very, very devil devil may care and very anti marriage. So marriage has has ruined everything. But the interesting thing is. That Dreiser had actually, in 1911, four years before, he had written a totally different version of this novel, and this is something that um, I actually edited, and it has only been out in the world recently. Um, it had existed in uh, in holograph form at, at the University of Pennsylvania, and basically, in the 1911 version, it's much more in line with the with the progressive marital theorists in that um, the, the problem is, is not marriage itself. The problem is this particular marriage. And what I mean by that is, and something I neglected to mention about the, the other text, and I know it gets very confusing with, it, with this back and forth, um, but in the, in the, in the, the 1911 version, um, the male protagonist ends up um, finding a much younger woman, falling madly in love with her, and they basically get married and live happily happily ever after. And everything is great because everything is now based on um, on emotion rather than on on jealousy, rather than on formalism. It's it's sexual. There's there's sexual compatibility. Um, they they are they are there on the basis of volunt. They are monogamous now, but it's the basis of voluntary. So so basically, we have this strange situation where Dreiser has written two very different versions of the same story. 
Um, and so I'm putting those two versions into dialogue with each other. And unfortunately, there are unlike the case of the other two marriages that I deal with, there's very little hard data, hard evidence in terms of the in terms of the, the real life wife's perspective, Sarah Sarah Dreiser's perspective. There are some things, but there's not a lot. So I so I certainly I spend a great deal of time looking at the different characterizations of her fictional version in Dreiser's two different uh, two different uh, versions of the novel. And I try very hard to do what to tease out her perspective, which is something that is fairly elusive. And that's sort of that is also a, a theme throughout throughout the book. Okay, the third the third novel, uh, the third couple you deal with is Neath Boyce and Hutchins Hapgood. Um, tell tell us about them. Well, they actually are probably my favorite um, favorite couple. I mean, it's hard not to get attached to these people when I'm sort of reading their private letters and whatnot. And I think the reason why they're my favorite is that even though they're, they they um, had very serious problems in their marriage, including all of the massive complications of, of, of adultery. Um, but I think they did by far the best job of li- living up to the idea that the man and, and woman should be equals and that, that they should both um, be, be working throughout their lives. And the fact that, so they are both writers. Another reason why there's, they're my favorite couple is because there was so much more to work with in, ter- in terms of the wife's perspective. Um, there's a huge, huge, huge archive of both of their papers at Yale, which conveniently enough is, is very close, very close to me. So their marriage was, um, and actually they met on the job appropriately enough. Um, Neith Boyce, um, and Hutchins Hapgood both worked for the famous, uh, muckraking editor Lincoln Steffens, and um, they and they, and they actually they actually met on the job. He courted her. Um, she was beautiful and extremely talented, and um, very. And there's a there's a lovely picture of her, with, you know, looking very much like a like a bold new woman with sort of sort of her her hand on her hip and a cigarette in one hand, and sort of sticking her chest out, not in a sexy way, but just in a very very proud way. So. So Hapgood courted her pretty desperately, um, and then they and they, they and their marriage, I think, was was very very sexually and, and emotionally passionate. Um, and they both then the two texts that I deal with primarily um, are again fictionalized versions of the marriage. In in Boyce's case, there's a wonderful novel called The Bond, um, which de- which deals with a young married couple very much parallel to their own their own relationship in Hapgood's case there's the there's a very quirky but quite fascinating memoir that was initially published privately called called the story the story of a lover and I mean I do want to emphasize that actually with all of the literary stuff that I'm that I'm dealing with um, I was sort of always walking through a minefield because these texts are autobiographically inspired but they're not autobiography but in any case in the, with with Boyce and with Boyce and Hapgood I would because there is um, published and unpublished such a huge archive for Boyce I was able to to access the wife's perspective much more and again as I had mentioned before one of the major co- I, I think they actually did a I think they did a pretty good job of um, having both of them continue as writers throughout their life together. Um, the biggest problem, as I mentioned before, was adultery and the complications that arise from adultery. Now, it seemed to me from your writing that the Sinclairs and the Dreisers were still sort of caught in, in between. What, the, formal idea, the, the former ideas about marriage and the new uh, reformed ideas about marriage. While Boyce and Hapgood seem to be much more modern. Absolutely, they're Absolutely. not. They're not as quite as conflicted with uh, old notions of what things should, how things should be and new things. That that's that's very true. Um, although there's, I mean, there still was, on it, and particularly in, in um, on Hapgood's side, there still was really a double standard. I mean, there was this when it when it comes to um, the 
falling in love outside of marriage. And actually one of the, one of the main things that Hapgood writes about in Story of a Lover, his, his, uh, his memoir, has to do with the crisis generated in their marriage when, um, when the wife, and, and it's, the memoir does not actually use formal names. It's just sort of a he, capital H, and she, capital, capital S. So when she um, actually falls in love with, with someone else, um, and the someone else, interestingly enough, was, was one of Hapgood's, Hapgood's closest friends. Um, but yeah, and, and you had mentioned there, the Hapgood and Boyce being more modern, and that's very, very true. And one thing that I deal with throughout the book, and actually it's very much how I see the, the progressive era, is, is it's very much sort of tangled up. It's, it's a transitional era. It's transitional between Victorian and modern. Um, and in some cases, there are, there's more looking backward in time. In other cases, in other cases, there's more looking forward. I'm going to go back to Dreiser a little bit. What was his idea of varietism? Varietism, yes. Um, So variety, and and he he is he is well known for this idea, and it's I mean I would say it's infamous. Um, So varietism is it's basically promiscuity. I mean, just if I just to give it one word. However, it's promiscuity dressed up and made to sound like it's actually a good thing and a positive thing. And um, if that sounds odd, I would want to say that actually one of the main proponents of varietism was the anarchist feminist Emma Goldman. Um, many people think of Dreiser as being very as, very, as being very sexist. Um, and there certainly there certainly is reason for that. And Dreiser was personally um, extremely extremely promiscuous, while often personally expecting that the women he was involved with would not be promiscuous. But he, um, despite his failings as a human being, um, he was actually quite friendly with Emma Goldman and admired her admired her very much. And Goldman is. Um, actually gave lectures in New York City about about varietism and she and and I think the idea of varietism actually makes the most sense the way she formulates it um, because she felt that um, and again it's 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 about disengaging sexuality and heterosexuality from anything that's economic or mercenary or anything that is going to involve the woman being dependent on the man, whether it's emotionally dependent or whether it's economically dependent. So um, when I say varietism is sort of promiscuity dressed up and made to sound made to sound nice, um, it does make sense, again, at least theoretically, um, for women to need to have access to their own sexuality and ability to express to express it, and so the theoretical idea was that if um, if sexuality, if everyone could express their sexuality openly and with as many people as possible, the notion that was that this would sort of disentangle it from proprietorship, proprietary notions. And I think it's a, I think it's an idea that both makes a huge amount of sense and also makes absolutely no sense. And I think that. After one has lived in the world for a long time, perhaps it makes less and less sense. Well, basically, it's the it's a partner to the idea of voluntary monogamy. In order to have voluntary monogamy, there has to be the possibility that you uh, the freedom and the possibility to have a variety of sexual partners. Yes, absolutely. So it's it's kind of the partner to that. Uh, so let me ask you another thing about this. What is the how did homosexuality run through all this discourse? It was there. Right. Uh, there were, I think one of the couples, the wife was a, which one was it? Sarah? Was it Sarah White Dreiser who was a, a lesbian? Oh, no, that, that would be wonderful if it were Sarah. But actually, it's, it's, it's uh, two, two of my sort of marital theorists. It's Havelock Ellis and, and Edith Ellis. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, and Havelock, Havelock Ellis actually wrote, he co-wrote um, a book on what was then called sexual inversion. Um, and Havelock Ellis is, is, is often defined as one of the so-called sexologists at, at the turn into the, in, into the 20th century, um, who were, among other things, um, 
starting to define sort of proto-modern notions of homosexuality. Um, And and Havelock Ellis and Edith Ellis had a very unusual marriage um, because, and I thought for a long time that, um, well, actually, you know, I, I, I wonder if there are any parallels with Virginia Woolf and Leonard Woolf, but I should not even go there at all. But so Edith Ellis uh, um, definitely preferred women, and I think that there was very little, very little, if any, um, sexual congress between between Havelock and Edith. But in any case, Havelock Ellis wrote a great deal sort of pro-homosexuality. One of their closest friends and another of my marital theorists, Edward Carpenter, is probably better known for, and he, he was homosexual, he is better known for his writings about, about homosexuality than he is, which he called, um, what did he call it? I'll think of it in a moment, a very, a very unusual word. But so anyway, so, so he's better known for his writings about, about homosexuality than he is his, his writings about marriage. Um, so it, so, so homosexuality runs through this in a very, um, important sort of biographical way. And also in terms of when you, when we look at the pub, the publishing history of, of some of these authors. Um, but I have a thread throughout my book and that I pick up mostly in the conclusion in which I am, I am arguing that in many ways the recent debates over gay marriage follow terms that are very similar to the debates over this progressive marital ideal at the turn into into the 20th century. And um, it's a difficult argument to summarize, but I think that it's, it's particularly clear in the way that detractors of both reform movements characterize the reformers because what happened in the progressive era as we have talked about a great deal is that the marriage reformers were were described as free lovers anti-marriage and what and what the rhetoric the rhetoric went on to um to insist that all of all of civilization is going to collapse and we see similar extremely apocalyptic rhetoric and it's actually ongoing and uh, and I, I had hoped that as you know more and more states were more and more states are um, are um, allowing gay marriage uh, one would hope that the that the rhetoric on the part of the, de- the detractors would diminish but we're still hearing about how all of civilization is, is, is going to fall apart. So there's that sort of connection too. Um, and so I think it's, I think it has to do with something about marriage and how important it is in terms of the social order. But the, these reformers seem to accept the fact that you could be married to a man, a heterosexual marriage, but at the same time you could be, have a homosexual relationships within a heterosexual marriage they didn't seem to have a problem with with that well um i think and this is a place where there is certainly a lot of um variation from person to person because a lot of the uh people that i'm dealing with and both the literary figures and most notable i mean upton sinclair theodore dreiser are sort of super hyper um, heterosexual, okay, um, and don't really spend much time thinking about um, thinking about um, homosexuality, and cer- certainly not in a in a in a positive way. Um, and this is true of some of my um, some of the other theorists as well. I think, especially of, of Ellen Key um, and Charlotte Perkins Gilman. I think Charlotte Perkins Gilman would be absolutely horrified if she. If she thought someone were saying that she was pro homosexuality, so I think it's more um, some of the theorists who are more who were more at the time left leaning, and again, particularly the Ellises and and Edward Carpenter. 
Um, but the thing that's interesting is that it, is that in their in their writings about marriage, they actually, you know, because it, it, one would think that it, this would be an, an ideal opportunity if you have if you have some of if you're if you're writing nonfiction. Uh, promoting homosexuality or trying to make people understand homosexuality and if you're also writing nonfiction promoting a particular model of heterosexual marriage now why not do them together but in point of fact the theorists tended to keep these writings very segregated from each other um, and so I think that the connections that I uh, draw out between the discourse at the time and also sort of leaping across a hundred years between progressive marriage reform and gay marriage, I think that they are things that the writers that I'm dealing with um, would probably be a, be a little bit surprised. The other thing that I noticed about uh, what you were talking about, these uh, novels, Love's Pilgrimage, The Genius, The Bond, these are pretty racy novels, and they have a reading public. And... Talk to me a little bit about that reading public. This is getting, this is not just theoretical people talking about it in the academy. People are reading these books with these different kinds of relationships going on, with different ideas. What's happening with the broader culture or with the reading public? Well, I, and that's, that's actually why I really wanted and needed to have, um, a very strong literary component to this, to this study because why, some of the some of the theoretical treatises actually had very wide audiences, um, like Edward Carpenter's Love's, Love's Coming of Age, I think was was a bestseller. But there's no question that um, fiction speaks to readers in very different ways, and um, particularly because, and this is perhaps a little less true of Boyce and Hapgood, but in the case of Dreiser, the Dreisers and the Sinclairs, and especially the Sinclairs, the reading public was quite aware of the marital troubles of the actual writers. So, so, so you have um, people who are reading these racy novels because they like racy novels, but at the same time, they're they're thinking and wondering and assuming that these racy novels are going to tell them about what's happening in, in the actual marriage. Um, and that's something that I deal with the most in the, with the case of, of the Sinclairs, because as I mentioned before, um, not so much um, when they were still um, marri- married and trying to stay together, but at the, as, the, as the Sinclair's marriage was breaking up, um, there were just literally hundreds and hundreds of, of newspaper accounts. So the reading public is consuming those newspaper accounts at the same time that they're consuming the novels. Um, perhaps a slightly different population reading some of the treatises. Some, some of them, though, were very, very accessible. Um, many of them were very accessible. Um, there are a few that I deal with that are more a little more academic, particularly George Eliot Howard's wonderful uh, History of Matrimonial Institutions, which clocks in at something like 2,000 pages. I don't think I don't think many people were talking about that around the, the around the kitchen table. Um, but yes, I mean th- these were, and I and I think that the existence of high-profile fiction um, is further indication of how widely these conversations were happening on the on the part of just regular citizens. So these ideas are getting disseminated very broadly in accessible ways. So we can, it's almost like you've got here a very rich period of time with lots of ideas, a lot of people trying different things out that really has an incredible amount of room for expansion in terms of scholarship and how we make the connections between that earlier period and us today. I hope so. And I think that especially uh, there's a lot that needs to be done, um, as I mentioned earlier, about addressing the common outcome of marriage, which is children. Because once you're talking about family structures, um, things just get a lot more complicated. Yes, because apparently they were writing about the individual couple just by themselves. And, you know, uh, in in that scenario, it's all about mutuality and and feelings and freedom but once children enter the, enter the picture that whole thing starts uh, looking different 
especially for women. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, okay so what is what is the takeaway for readers? Uh, what, what do you want them to get out of this book? Because they can get a lot out of it. There is a lot. It's rich. It's really full of incredible amount of research. And there's a lot to explore, a lot of conversation that can come from this book. But what is it the one thing you would hope that the reader, both lay leader, readers and academic readers, would get from reading your book? Um, well, thank you. Thank you for that question. Um, one thing that I would like for readers to get, and I actually, when I was doing the final revisions of this book, I tried to keep in mind my uh, my friends, and most of my friends are not academics, and I would like I would like for my friends to be able to read this book. And and one thing is, I I would like people to walk away saying, "Wow, a lot of these notions about marriage." Um, and what marriage should look like that I thought were very modern, very late 20th century, actually started over 100 years ago. Um, and another thing that I would like readers to take away, this would be more um, an, an, an audience of historians, is I would like for historians to take away the notion, the, the, the notion that the progressive era and the progressive era is always framed in terms of reform. Whether people think the reforms were successful or not is much debated. But I would like for historians to take away the notion that this this massive debate and dialogue about marriage is actually essential to essential to the to the progressive era. And I also think it seems to shed a lot of light on what we consider the 1960s uh, sexual revolution. Yes, yes. That we tend, that, we, we tend to think of the 1960s sexual revolution as sort of coming out of nothing. Right, right. And I think that this creates a continuity that needs to be explored further. It's Claire, I have one more. You have been very generous with your time, and I have one more question for you. What are you working on now? Well, what I'm working on now, I've, I've actually jumped um, – since I sort of talking about all this jumping, I've actually I'm actually obsessed now with contemporary fiction and contemporary issues, and most specifically, I'm interested in corporate personhood, um, which is most it's probably best known now. It's associated with the 2010 Supreme Court decision that Citizens United, but in point of fact, this the the, the granting of this sort of legalistic artificial ideas of personhood to corporations, it actually goes back to the progressive era, actually very early progressive era. And and the first um, Supreme Court case, which legal historians to this day see as being the the start of of corporate personhood, was in 1886. Um, So I've been been reading a lot of contemporary fiction um, and a lot of uh, contemporary nonfiction as well, uh, that shed light on corporate personhood and and also income inequality, which is I mean I, I think corporate personhood is relates to everything, but particularly income inequality. And what I'm hoping to do um, is I'm hoping to write a book that's going to bridge what's happening now with what happened again a hundred years ago, um, because I think what we really have is like sort of two different progressive eras sharing many of the same problems and ideas and concerns. Thank you, Claire. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. I welcome your comments. Send me an email at newbooks.gender at gmail.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger.